The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on the drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined by James Butler of Navarra Media. We spoke about Brexit, the likelihood of a no deal, what a second referendum might look like and how the left should theorise the European Union. As always, you can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast and you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle, as always, is at Poll Theory Other. If you've been enjoying PTO, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. It really helps the show to attract new listeners. And if you've been particularly enjoying the show, please do think about supporting it via Patreon. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll gain access to extended versions of PTO episodes. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. James Butler is a senior editor at Navarra Media. He's the host of the excellent Navarra FM, and his interests include social movements and the relationship between literature and politics. Our conversation was recorded the day of Theresa May's press conference following her unsuccessful talks with the EU27 in Brussels last week. I began the interview by asking James whether Theresa May had any strategy other than simply running the clock down and hoping that the prospect of a no-deal Brexit would spook MPs into voting for the draft withdrawal agreement. Yeah, I mean, so the, the, I think probably she actually doesn't have any strategy other than running down the clock at this point. Um, she has a parliamentary problem to contend with, obviously. So she has this, uh, you know, she has given assurances that she's going to uh, put something in front of the Commons in January. Um, that you know, that it is unclear how far she has a legal obligation to do that at this point. Um, I think after today, she's going to go home and she's going to take a look at what's in front of her and say, okay, this isn't going through the Commons, so I'm going to delay it as much as possible, run down the clock, hopefully end up in a situation. Um, where where either MPs feel pressured to vote for it, uh, or if it you know if it gets booted in January, which I think you know is it's inarguable if this year is Labour for Parliament, it's it's not going through. Uh, the other thing that she might try to do, and it's a very very risky proposition, is to tarp it. So it's the same thing that happened with the troubled asset uh, troubled assets relief program in the United States after the global financial crash, which is to say, um, you know, a piece of legislation fails to pass, the markets go wild, it's put again, uh, in, in that case, in, in, in the US a couple of weeks later, and it passes because of market panic. I actually don't, you know, I think that's, that's, an, that's definitely a strategy that's been circulating on the right. I actually don't think it will work. I suspect that 
it's been priced in by this point that it's not going through. So then the options open to her really are to run away from it all, which, you know, I'm amazed she hasn't done already. But, I, you know, by this point, she's, uh, you know, I think you'd... <laughs> there, was, there was a joke from uh, uh, a, a staffer at number 10 who said, you know, if you went in and gave May whiskey and a revolver, uh, she'd d- drink the whiskey and shoot you with the revolver. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone's getting. I think anyone's getting. We'll, we'll see if there was a passing migrant, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean that ultimately means that really, um, e- either, uh, you know, she tries to put it, put it once, it it fails. Tries a second time. If that then fails, then I think you probably have that choice in front of you of a general election or a second referendum. Now piece of Westminster gossip that has been circulating today is that uh, second referendum is at the bottom of her preference list, which would suggest that a general election is higher. Uh, The other thing, however, that is possible is that she she could put a referendum deal to Parliament Uh, So obviously the way referendums work in the UK, you have to pass a specific act of legislation. There's no power for the government to hold one of its own free will. That has to happen under the Referendums Act of 2006. Obviously, that's amendable. But it would be, I think, tempting to her to build on what, you know, she spins the EU as saying, which is it's it's this deal or, or no deal. And say the referendum will put to the UK will be May's deal or no deal. Then that amps the pressure up on uh, Corbyn uh, to amend it to say, okay, then we're going to put in Remain and God knows how many other options. Um, so you know, so a second referendum is not without its its kind of technical problems because there are there are those questions of like how you structure the question. You know, then you have the whole process of certification, which you'd have to extend Article Fifty. There's no way it would be done before the deadline. Um, I mean, extending Article 50 appears to be easier now following the ECJ ruling, right? Absolutely. Uh, It's only difficult, actually, in the sense that it will cause domestic political pressure for her, um, because it's pretty clear, actually, from much of the polling, that people on her side of the aisle, people in the Tory base, Tory voters, mostly are thinking, you know, you know, get it, get it done already. Get it. You know, why, why have we not left yet? It's a, it's, a, it's an amazingly enduring uh, sort of <laughs> sort of uh, canard that 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 you hear in Vox Pops all the time. But it's also there, you know, in bigger macro polling. It's like, you know, why haven't we left yet? Uh, so, so any extension of Article Fifty will really risk um, the right of her party uh, uh, really going for. Her. That is why, incidentally, that she said that she she isn't. You know, she's not going to extend it. Um, so that's a bit of a political trap for her in a second referendum. It might make a general election look more attractive. I have to say, I can't imagine that her experience of the 2017 general election makes one especially attractive for her, um, having completely screwed herself uh, on that one. Uh, she's also given this commitment uh, during the no confidence vote on uh God, what even day was it? Wednesday. Um, it's been a really long week. Um, that that Tory no confidence vote that they had in there, which she won, um, she gave the assurance to people there that 
she would not lead them into the next general election. So, so uh, all of these things are are quite difficult. There is there is basically no clear avenue for her. Uh, the EU has said no, uh, and really, actually, taken her out at the ankles. I don't know. Uh, you know, it, it's also pretty clear that she left yesterday thinking that they were going to issue some, you know, something relatively supportive, even if not substantial. And then at some point last night, there was a tete-a-tete among uh, the 27 and they decided to kick her feet out from underneath her. Uh, So, yeah, no, nothing looks great for her. And I actually, at at this point, find it very difficult to make uh, much in the way of predictions, partly because, uh, you know, I think really the only... Uh, you know, the only intelligible option open to her is to just run down the clock and put the pressure on. Um, Why do you think that a second referendum would be at the bottom of the list in terms of preferences? I mean, it seems slightly strange given that that she did campaign for Remain and and appears not to be a sort of closet Brexiteer, Mm. although obviously she's very hostile to free movement. Yes. Yeah. So... Uh, in a sense, I think this is one of those places where, where on the surface level, you have to think about the individual character of politicians and, uh, you know, the, 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 their curious sort of vanity. Though at the moment, she is a politician without a legacy. I mean, other than the racist van, which, not great. So if she can, you know, be seen to steer Britain through something like this, uh, you know, she might have a hope to be remembered in that sense. And, and however much she is not a David Cameron, she, I mean, she definitely thinks about her legacy. Now, a second referendum, I think, you know, I think it's at the bottom of her list, partly because she is of, you know, she has that residual sense that the last one was appalling for the country uh, and the next one will be as well. But I think that's relatively minor compared to the way that she feels about her own party. Because, you know, those of us on the left look at, you know, the split within the Labour Party about the European Union between, you know, Eurosceptic and, like, uh, (laughs) phenomenally Europhile. Um, That is nothing compared to the division within the Tory party about it. You know, I... And, you know, there was a story on the front page of the Times today saying, saying you know, uh, Tory party risks permanent European split. Um, and as ever, I, I, you know, I think talk about splits in the Tory party are always rather more optimistic than based in reality, partly because, you know, as a ruling class party, they tend to be uh, bound together simply by the fact of the exercise of power. Um, and there's however, first past the post as well makes it less absolutely, attractive. Absolutely. But, you know, I think it's possible to see or what she sees is, is there being, you know, it, it being less likely that there will be a formal split, but that internal warfare in the Tory party, absent a unifying figure, which they obviously don't possess, you know, will lead them down effectively that something that looks like the end of the major years and then the long uh, sort of William Hague. Michael Howard exodus that they had uh, during the Blair administration. So that kind of very internally directed, uh, you know, incredibly internecine, uh, really, really unpleasant. So, so that's part of it. And then there's the electoral base as well, right? Because, you know, yes, 
it's a first-past-the-post system, um, but their electoral base, outside of you know a relatively small core of affluent Tory voters in the cities, is still very much a Leave base. Much more so than the Labour Party base, by the way. There, you know, there is a, there is still a large chunk of Labour Leavers. You know, in the case of a general election where the Tory base feels betrayed by the party. Fear isn't that they don't go. To, the fear isn't that they go to the Labour Party. The fear is that they stay home and they lose those seats. You know, those those would be seats like Amber Rudd's in Hastings, already a tiny majority uh, that would go in that scenario. Um, so, so, so all of these things. A second referendum will be seen as betrayal by that base, uh, and it's hard to know how they would heal those. You know, you know, heal those wounds with the base. So. Uh, so yeah, no, I think there are very obvious reasons that she, she, that, that you know, to to resist it. It would be, in a sense, easier for her to go into a general election where she could say, "We are the party of Brexit. The Labour Party's Brexit co- policy is confused. Uh, we are going to deliver Brexit. Um, you know, we're going to, you know, we've extended Article 50, and after a general election." Uh, the European Union will be able to see very clearly the will of the people according to our political programme versus the Labour Party, which continues to be confused and secretly wants to stop Brexit or whatever. So that to me is the political calculation there. Now, obviously, in practice, no Tory uh, and certainly no member, I think, uh, of the cabinet want a general election because they're, they're still very, very much bruised from the last one. So with regards to the Labour Party, I mean, it, it, it feels like, and, and not just in the party, but in the broader left, that there is uh, an increasing coming around to the idea of a second referendum, even from people who were uh, opposed to it. I mean, um, mm-hmm. Paul Mason is, is, is an obvious case of this. Um, I mean, I, I listened to your to your, uh, a recent episode of, of Navarra um, in, in which you were suggesting that, you know, there's a very good chance that a second Remain campaign would look very much like the first one. So the prominent figures would be, you know, sort of neoliberal centrists. It would be Alistair Campbell. It would be Tony Blair. Mm. Um, you know, Bob Geldof and and similar figures. Um, but um, it, it does feel like perhaps uh, th- there would be the possibility of, of Labour running some sort of uh, dynamic, uh, you know, Remain and Reform campaign and an attempt to uh, hegemonise the the Remain campaign. Um, how likely do you think that is? And and also, how realistic do you think it is that the EU could be reformed in a progressive direction? Mm, okay, yeah, super interesting. I'll take it in two parts then, because the, the first question about like the formal politics of that campaign, uh, the only coordinate, as far as I can see, that has changed substantially since the last one is the position of the Labour Party, right? So the left is now in control, um, you know, very, very clearly, um, very firmly ensconced in the leadership. Um, there would be an opportunity to properly lead that campaign, partly because of the way in which the referendums work, the way in which the parties are involved in, you know, uh, uh, figuring out how to, uh, you know, figuring out how the official uh, campaigns are recognised, whether they have first refusal, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the problem with this stuff is the problem that's going to be there as before, because there will be a strong cross-party element to it, regardless of uh, you know, uh, regardless of how, how it works. And that means not just, say, Liberal Democrats and the SNP, both of whom uh, I, I am pretty sceptical about in this context, but also 
there is, you know, the problem with those major, major campaign groups, something like Best Britain uh, and the various youth groups around them, all of which are kind of very, very attuned to that, that, that sort of neoliberal drive. However, for me, the major problem within a second referendum is not necessarily the relation of the parties to the official campaigns, as it is the media landscape in Britain. And what has been striking to me this week, so obviously I've been like very attuned to the news in the past week, is that, you know, the, the roster of people that mainstream news programming, i.e. like the real uh, agenda setting news programs, and we're talking, of course, here in the context of like, a really hegemonic BBC, especially, have, you know, have Chuka Umina, Tony Blair, Alistair, all, you know, as you say, they, they select from, from a very kind of, you know, clear core of people. That to me is the major obstacle in that kind of campaign. I don't think it's insurmountable, um, but I think it's a very serious problem. Owen Jones was suggesting today that, uh, you know, while we should be looking for a general election, those are the things that we have to consider, you know, uh, as as part of a campaign that inevitably would include those people, um, you know, how how do you square, um, you know, how do you figure out how, how you get them off the stage? Effectively, how do you lock Tony Blair in a basement for the duration of, of, of such a campaign? Mm. It's, it's a big... With Anna Subaru. Yeah, well, exactly. Oh, God. <laughs> but but so, so the larger question, and I guess the question that is behind that in some way, because that question presupposes that the Labour position ought to be remain and reform or remain and revolt, as as Paul Mason uh, used to say during during the initial campaign. Um, and, you know, I, I go back and forth on this. Uh, I, I have long been kind of hostile to a lot of things in the EU. I voted remain during the last uh, uh, referendum. I think I was probably right to do so. Um, but nonetheless, there are major, major problems in terms of you know, inculcating progressive change here. You know, so and it's not just so it's not just in, in terms of the domestic thing. So so very often people, you know, there's there's a big conflict that keeps going on about um, the nature of European law, what it allows you to do domestically, what it doesn't, uh, especially in terms of nationalizations, the kind of programs that Labour would want to carry out. I think that is an important debate and I, I think it depends on your reading of uh, the way in which not only the treaties function um, but the way in which you know the direction in which European jurisprudence has been heading and I've got to say the direction it has been heading is in an intensely neoliberal one that will not be a surprise to anyone listening to this but 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 that's the truth now whether um, an influential and powerful government like the United Kingdom could make an argument based on certain articles of the treaties. So the very fa the, the most important one there would be Article 345 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union, um, which effectively say, you know, effectively gives quite broad latitude, or in theory gives broad latitude to domestic governments to do what they want in terms of economic arrangements, um, which you know people suggest takes some of the sting out of sort of state aid rules. Now you know, that debate aside, it does seem to me that the serious problem here is that actually at the constitutional level of the European Union. And it's one of the things that is often very hard to get across to the British electorate, um, which is because British people don't think about constitutional law as well at all, because there's never been a constitutional moment, really, in the course of British politics. So 
We might yeah, be in one now. We might well be in one now, actually. Um, which, you know, is very exciting for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, just, but, just not many other people. <laughs> yeah, no, just, just me. <laughs> All of this is done for my pleasure. Uh, <laughs> but there, so, so there is... There is um, so there's an argument that Richard Tuck makes, uh, who is a theorist of sovereignty, uh, teaches, I think, at Harvard now, uh, you know, very, very full, like, lexit, uh, really, you know, on, on that train. But he makes the argument, or made the argument ahead of the last uh, referendum on this, that, that, you know, British politicians and the electorate don't understand you know, big constitutional moments or constitutional questions like should you be in or out of the European Union, precisely because there's no history of constitutional thinking within uh, the UK, which isn't this kind of, uh, you know, very stuffy, badger-like, partly because there's never been a kind of bourgeois codified constitution. That means that we tend to treat these things like general election campaigns, i.e. things that, you know, are bound by largely, uh, you know, short-term or medium-term concerns rather than larger-term structural concerns. And the argument that he makes is that because of the nature of the British constitution, like a, a quirk of historical circumstance, Parliament, and indeed as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, Parliament has pretty much unlimited power to do as it pleases. Um, or that was true until we joined the European Union and were therefore bound by various aspects of European law. Now, I think... And, and this theory, is why people like Tony Benn were opposed to joining yeah, the, the community in the first place, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, actually, on that level of abstraction, it's definitely true. Where it falls down for me is on the practical political level um, in which, actually, uh, the, the kind of nature of international order at the moment or in the contemporary world is such that uh, a UK exiting the European Union would still be bound in, you know, in various forms of kind of liberal uh, world order, which admittedly may itself also be breaking down. Um, so, so, so on that level, I think it's it's a it's a very it's a really huge gamble to make. But but as you can probably hear, I am instinctively inclined. To, to that kind of argument. I am instinctively inclined to that kind of critique of the European Union. I'm instinctively inclined to that kind of reading of the situation. But politics doesn't only operate on that level. And so my, I grappled with it he quite heavily last time about what way to vote in, in, in that referendum. I eventually decided to vote, vote Remain because partly because of my reading of political forces in the UK. I thought the left was probably a bit more feeble than it actually was, which because I tend to be pessimistic about these things, um, I thought. Well, it was that... a common view. I mean, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, no. I mean, Corbyn seemed in a very ropey position at the time. I, right? I was, I, I was, I was expecting him not to endure much longer, uh, and I'm glad I was wrong about that. But my other reading was to do with the kind of dominance of anti-migration uh, elements and sort of you know racist street movements during the campaign which included that like hideous farage uh poster of the kind of queue of migrants etc etc i you know i thought you know it, as much as one would like there to be a clear uh lexit element to the campaign it didn't seem to me to be a, an accurate reading of the forces on the ground and whether that could change the next time i'm open to the argument that it could but the other part of the argument then has to be about actually practically what it looks like to make policy in a kind of lexit environment and actually it, it does you know that you know there, there are serious consequences to that kind of exit from the european union um 
not least because we, you, you know, you then have you know WTO uh, rules coming in. You have sort of uh, GATT constrictions. You have similar rules, frankly, on state aid. And this is a situation in which there's, you know, in fact, there's an article from or co-authored by Richard Tuck today, Irish paper, I think, in which he says, uh, well, actually, there is a kind of national security clause in GATT, which could be used to which is the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, um, which could be used to kind of position uh, a nationalisation of socialist programme domestically. Anyway, all of that is at, at the level of theory. Um, the other element is, of course, the practical political elements within the European Union. Um, and so the big argument that's made from uh, the Lexit people on this stuff is to say, look, in order to change the treaties of the European Union, to really rewrite the DNA, the kind of post-92 Maastricht DNA of the European Union, you need a left government that broadly agrees on everything in each of the 28 European Union countries. That is not going to happen. Um, and I think you know that you know that's a pretty strong critique, actually. Now, whether you you know whether you think that there are options open to change the European Union without changing what's in its treaties is a case that I have seen made, but seen made only partly, and I don't think very well. Um, but it is arguable that this is something that that, that ha has happened at the state level. So at the suprastate level, it's not completely unreasonable. Um, there is also simply a kind of very uh, realist political reading here or political, political economic reading, which is that the UK is an enormous economy and the weight that it, it necessarily carries within the EU uh, has its own impact. So one of the reasons that 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 the, the post-92 direction of the European is particularly neoliberal is precisely because Britain was in it, right? So this is this why Thatcher liked it. it. It was why Major liked it. It was, you know, that there was a really, really strong element of actually British victory within Europe. It got all of the things it wanted in terms of rebates. It got, you know, its opt-outs. It didn't have to join the euro. Great idea, by the way. <laughs> like, I'm very glad that, that Britain didn't join the euro. Um, terrible sort of terrible idea um but yeah i mean the kind of weight that was put towards neoliberalizing the european union um it is it is to me arguable certainly that similar weight behind a left government could also do that at the european level the problem here again it circles back to the treaty question um so you know obviously thatcher was a vector of neoliberalism within the european union um at a point in which its treaties were in flux. And they aren't at the moment, but some of the stuff going on in Europe at the moment might also signal that perhaps within the course of the next decade, there's going to have to be some kind of reckoning within Europe, you know, between between the kind of unevenness of the core economies and the peripheral economies. Um, you know, and the obvious case here in, in here being Greece, but also um, those economies to the east of Germany. Uh, as well as the other Mediterranean nations as well. So, uh, and I think that will kick off again, uh, by the way, if Macron goes through with his uh, desire to, to to pacify his protesters um, by running a, a, a budget deficit. So, um, because what they'll do is they'll do what they always do for the core nations, which is say, eh, yeah, you're a powerful member, you can do pretty much whatever you want. Um, and that will really irritate the Italians, and rightly. Uh, so, so there are all these kind of dynamics at play, I think, within Europe that makes it a sort of livelier place, you know, in terms of, of, of what political pressure might be. But 
I still think that there is a serious, serious problem with, you know, the, you know, the, it's like it's like one of those uh, those kind of jokes that people make, which is, you know, reform the European Union, question mark, question mark, question mark, you know, socialism. And, you know, like it, the, the method is is not clear to me uh, and certainly some of the attempts to do it you know Yanis Varoufakis's sort of vanity project uh, you know uh, the, these kind of you know, pan-European very thin very weak uh, political entities don't really seem to have much purchase um, you know it, it, among enough of the populations in order to drive that kind of change so you know and, and this again in some ways is, is one of the problems of Europe, it's an argument that people make, oh, there is no European demos, there is no European people. Um, that, of course, is true, but but such an entity is formed uh, <laughs> dialectically. Uh, it's formed, you know, as part of a political process. Um, so, so the fact that there's no pre-existing one world, there's no pre-existing anything. So, so I don't, you know, I don't exceed with that argument in its basis, but importantly it recognizes that there is you know quite a, a weak basis um for undertaking those kind of uh, transformations in in the space in which they need you know in the time in the time in which they need to be done which is you know which is not a 50-year project it has to be done you know soon i mean i suppose uh, one possibility of, of a remain reform campaign might be that it would have a sort of useful pedagogical effect within the UK in the the you, you know the the reason I didn't find the Lexit position very appealing and I, I imagine it's the same for you was that it just it, it didn't have any traction people just weren't aware of, of the left-wing kind of critique um, and I wonder if perhaps that by um, recognizing that there would need to be a conflict with the EU institutions and actually going for that but hoping to take some European allies with you um, that you might actually um, that might have the effect of perhaps mm. regarding that sort of um, very kind of uh, romantic Romaniac view of, of the European Union it might actually do something to that because I you know I don't think um, I think a lot of people within that that demographic weren't particularly happy with what the, the EU did to to Greece, for example. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I don't think we'd be particularly excited to see the European Union blocking um, efforts at, at nationalisation in the UK. I mean, th- there are differences within that demographic. There are certainly some very hardline neoliberal types who would be um, on the EU side in that dispute. But I but I think it's a it's a block that you could you could fracture. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. And actually, you know, to, to add uh, to add to that reading, you know, I think it, it, in the event of a second referendum, um, a dominant, you know, one of the two parties, i.e. in this case, the Labour Party, supporting a position that said, we will ally with you know, insurgent left movements uh, which are in power or approaching power across the EU. Um, so we will, you know, with the new kind of uh, Pessoa in Spain, with Syriza, um, you know, <laughs> um, you know, you know, with probably some of the 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 um, the, the Northern Socialists as well. Um, you know, we will a lot, you know, and you know, it's it's worth saying we'll also perhaps have to make some awkward and uncomfortable alliances with people who are hard to read, like the the Five Star Movement. To, just to say, you know, that there is a strategic block here which can be used to really prize apart what has been, you know, the hegemonic 
uh, ideal within Europe. You know that that kind of you know, rather um, uh, self congratulatory uh, and oozing uh, fraternity of Juncker, uh, Schreibler, like all of this kind of you know uh, uh, core kind of. Uh, neoliberal type, you know, Verhofstadt is actually the, the kind of classic case in point. One of the things that people don't realise about him is is not only that he wrote, by the way, a very strange book with Danny Cohn-Bendit um, called For Europe, which is big, like a manifesto for a, a properly federal Europe in which he says, Europe should be an empire, but, you know, a good, good kind, <laughs> which is like really, really, really strange. Um, but uh, he also, you know, this is a guy who was on the board of of, of companies which profited massively um, out of the, the destruction of Greece. You know, painting these people as the enemy and dislodging them while remaining committed to, uh, you know, to, to Europe as a, a, a project, I think could, could be very, very fruitful. Um, you know, I, I worry um, about whether there's kind of limited political capacity in that sense, about, about being drawn onto a battle on both fronts, both domestically and in Europe. But I think were Labour, were the, the left of the Labour Party to sit down and hammer out what a vision for a socialist Europe would look like, that would persuade me, you know, and, and do so plausibly, that could, that could persuade me to uh, conclusions that I have been a little lukewarm about thus far. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. PTO will be back in the new year.